Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing's podcast number 106 on March 9th of 2023. Today, I'll be answering four questions. In the first question, I continue as I have for the two previous podcasts with an analysis of Warren Buffett's $626 billion Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. This time, I look closely at the only penny stock that appears in this 51-stock portfolio. Today's analysis may give you some insights to consider before you invest in a penny stock. Question number one. Out of hundreds of strong profitable stocks to choose from, why would Warren Buffett invest in an unprofitable penny stock? One definition of a penny stock is a stock that trades for under $5 a share. About half the stocks in the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio of 51 stocks are trading at more than $100 a share. For example, American Express trading at $174 and MasterCard Inc. trading at $353. The highest price share and the only one trading at more than $396 a share is Markle Corporation, stock symbol MKL, which was trading at $1,000. $327.97. Supposedly, the higher the share price, the financially stronger the stock. It reflects a strong demand for a stock. It then comes a surprise to find Buffett's remarkable portfolio contains a stock that was trading at $4.82. It wasn't always trading at $4.82. When its initial placement order debuted on the New York Stock Exchange on December 1st of 2021, it was sold to speculators at $9 per share. A day later, on December 10th of 2021, it hit $12.24 a share, and then it slid and never recovered. It has been as low as $3.62. The stock symbol for this company is NU. It uses the trade style of NU Bank and is listed as NU Holdings Limited in the Berkshire Hedge Fund. I've studied many penny stocks over the years and have even owned some. What they all seem to have in common are dreams of greatness. The promotions are always about their potential. They may be small and struggling now, but they will soon be the next Microsoft or the next Tesla. There's always a charismatic leader behind such a stock who can excite investors. NU seems to have found one in their chief executive officer, 
David Valdez. He is described as a Colombian billionaire who has established, and I quote, the world's biggest standalone digital bank. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? Until you look at it closely. New Bank has a minus 19.82 profit margin. Promoters are quick to skate over this reality by pointing out that its revenues have climbed by tens of millions over the previous year. Those revenues in 2022 at $2,971,000,000 are impressive until you look at the net income, which was minus $364,000,000 for that year. This is more than double the net income loss of the previous year. In order for a company to make a profit, you not only have to make wise revenue decisions, but you also need to make wise expense decisions. The purpose of creating a business is to make a profit. The cost of generating and used sales does not seem to be working. Who is NU marketing their digital banking service to? I can imagine a sales pitch deliberately geared to wealthy investors. New sees itself as tapping into a neglected, overlooked banking market in Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. 60% of the citizens of these countries do not have access to banking services. 90% of them have no access to credit cards. I suspect this huge, untopped market was promoted as a potential gold mine. Now, using a cell phone, these underserved potential customers can have access to personal loans, savings accounts, online purchasing, and all the other benefits that those in America take for granted. Unfortunately, while the average monthly income in America is reported to be $4,154, in Colombia it is only $441, in Mexico $560, and in Brazil $544. While in America a credit report exists on almost every adult, in low-income countries of the world like India, the Philippines, Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, there are only credit reports and perhaps at most 20% of the most affluent members of their population. The population of the three companies combined is almost 400 million. 80% of that is 320 million. If NU Bank now has 75 million customers, has it perhaps only established a customer relationship with the wealthier elite of these countries? Banking is all about credit risk. To grow its customer base, how is NU Bank going to make profitable loans if 
expensive credit scoring tools to establish credit risk do not exist. Before you can tap into the millions now, now served by banks, you must train and educate them. In India, they have financial institutions first introducing microloans and microsavings. Microloans are offered to borrowers without any collateral. Microsavings accounts allow entrepreneurs to open and operate savings account without minimum balance requirements. The allure of standalone digital banking to tap into a market of several hundred million potential users reminds me of how in 2008, when mortgage-backed securities were a hot investment, the demand for these securities was so great that deadbeats were giving mortgages just so the financial institutions could have mortgages put in these funds. These seriously flawed funds were then sold to investors as safe investments. The ignorant buyers were told they were safe because the mortgages were secured by real estate. Unfortunately, since anyone could get a mortgage, no matter what the amount, the developers greatly inflated the prices of their properties they were selling. When thousands of deadbeats could not meet their mortgage payments and the bubble burst, real estate prices dropped like a stone. Those holding mortgage-backed securities lost billions of dollars. As Warren Buffett is fond of saying, when blood is running in the street, that is when you become greedy. He stepped in and bailed Wall Street out of the mess, and in so doing, reaped billions of dollars in profits when things turned around. Does he see a similar opportunity at NU and is biding his time? With 2008 crash, the credit assessment tools did exist on every one of those home buyers that had no possibility of repaying their mortgages. But no one wanted to look closely at the reality of the situation. There was just too much money being made by developers and financial institutions. Somehow, David Valdez convinced almost a dozen large financial institutions to contribute millions of dollars to finance NU. 70.34% of NU shares are held by these institutions. Half of them contribute more than the 516 million contributed by Berkshire Hathaway. This flood of capital from investors appears to be how NU can continue to operate without making a profit. However, it is burning through its capital reserves, and there is a limit. How long will the investors wait patiently to see a healthy, profitable company? In a typical day, 35 million NU shares are being traded on the stock exchange. For every buyer, 
there must be a seller willing to sell their shares at the price buyers are offering. I can hear the stock seller's pitch. Buy a thousand shares for less than $5,000. What can you lose? The shares are going to soar. This is Brazil's fifth largest financial institution. It's generating almost $3 billion in revenue. Warren Buffett, the greatest investor in the world, is behind it. His hedge fund, Berkshire Hathaway, is worth over $327 billion. Of course, sellers make no mention that this company's price-to-earnings ratio is minus 163.1 or that it is an unprofitable operation. When I put NU through my stock scoring software, it scored an 18, which is not unusual for a penny stock. I avoid stocks who score less than 50. Yet, despite its unprofitability, three analysts are recommending it as a strong buy and seven others as a buy. I wonder, what do they see that I am unable to see? I wonder if they are like my speculator friend who gets very angry when I point out the low stock scores of penny stocks. He insists you can't measure stocks like this in the same way you do regular companies. Perhaps he is right. I have invested in penny stocks who had strong operating margins and paid excellent dividends of 8% or more. Within a few years, I've had a $4 stock climb to $24 a share before they were bought out by another company who recognized their good value. Just because a stock is priced below $5 does not mean that it cannot be financially strong and profitable. What attracts speculators to a penny stock like NU? Is it greed or the lure of gambling to make that really big score? Question number two. What is the one key question to ask an investment advisor that they probably hope you will not ask. If you think about it, the most obvious key question to ask in your first face-to-face meeting with a financial advisor who you are considering engaging is, can you please show me your last six months of your investment statements? I would like to see what you personally invest in and what your results are like. You might be surprised in what your investment advisor is investing in and how poor his choice of investments are. You might also discover that his or her portfolio would be a fraction of the size of your portfolio. The financial advisor's portfolio should be immediately accessible, just as yours would be. You do not want it being doctored before you see it. What you hope to see is a large, growing portfolio with impressive investments in it. This gives you the opportunity to ask about the investments and why they were chosen. You are looking for logical thinking and a depth of knowledge that you do not feel you possess. This proof 
of competency with his own money reassures you that they may have the ability to manage your money. Don't close the deal in the first meeting. Ask for references and tell them you wish to think about it. In the second face-to-face, you get into what their services are going to cost you and how they propose to service you. A weak, incompetent financial advisor will balk at this intrusion on their privacy. However, you explain that you're about to lay bare your intimate financial reality and they should do the same to establish an element of trust. Most financial advisors usually see the investor as being an inferior player in this selling situation. They do not expect an investor to take control. Most investors are usually intimidated and unsure of themselves in meeting a financial advisor. They should not be. Question number three. How can you achieve high returns in a stock portfolio while taking on little risk? You first have to understand what the stock market is. It is an auction vehicle that allows optimistic speculators who think that a stock is going to rise in value to buy stocks from pessimistic speculators who think the stock is going to decrease in value. The optimist has to provide enough incentive in their bid to the pessimists to make them want to sell the stock. If the incentive is not provided, then nothing happens and the stock price does not change. Multiply such guessing by millions taking place every day and you are left with the reality that trying to predict future share prices accurately is futile. Interestingly, what is more predictable is the paying of dividend payments. Why? Because dividends are realized from profits. Profits are the result of logical processes and thinking by the executives of companies making wise decisions about revenues and expenses. The executives are focused on increasing sales and profits, not share prices. This is why, even in a recession, when all the optimists have retreated and share prices have fallen, that you can see many financially strong long-established companies increasing their dividend payments. Dividend payments are divorced from the interplay of speculators and at best are only able to influence speculators. In analyzing a stock, I use the IDM stock scoring software and collect that information and the historical share price and dividend payment information since 1999. If you send me an email, I'll send you an example 
of such information from a page in my latest book, New York Stock Exchange's 106 Best High Dividend Stocks Analyzed and Scored. With such data, it then becomes a simple matter of sorting stocks by strength and dividend yield. Since you should aim at having a portfolio of 20 stocks, you will find that you're balancing stocks with higher scores and lower dividend payments with stocks with lower scores and higher dividend payouts. Achieving an average dividend yield percent of 6% and an average additional gain in the value of your portfolio by 12% is possible most years. Question number four. What is the highest dividend-paying stock that is still a good investment to hold on to? In the book, New York Stock Exchange's 106 Best High Dividend Stocks, the stock with the highest score paying the best dividend is symbol SBLK, which stands for Star Bolt Carriers. With a score of 65 and an unusually high dividend yield percent of 32.12%. However, it should be noted that this high yield occurred in August of 2022 when Star Bulk Carriers had paid out a dividend of 1.65 cents on a stock with a value at the time of $26.96. In 2021, it had paid out 70 cents, and in 2020, it had paid 5 cents when the stock was trading at $19.17. Prior to that, there had been no dividend payouts since 2012. Thus, you should consider the complete picture before buying a stock. There are many stocks detailed in that book who have paid good, ever-increasing dividend payments consistently since 1999. The book supplies star bulk carrier's book value, operating margin, and price-to-earnings ratio, along with other useful stock data. Will star bulk carriers repeat its payout in 23? With only a very few years of recent dividend payouts, this would be a speculative guess. The highest score out of thousands I have calculated was 78. The lowest was a 4. I personally avoid stocks under 50. Starbout Carriers is a Greek-based shipping company traded on the NASDAQ. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com. Thank you.